I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 10th, 2017. Coming up, we talk with astrobiologist Dr. David Grinspoon about how studying other planets can help us predict and perhaps intentionally shape Earth's future. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. We've talked about the gene editing technique called CRISPR on the show in the past. The technology is transforming medical science and our lives. Recently, researchers from the University of California, San Francisco broke new ground. They characterized a huge number of DNA sequences whose function was previously unknown. The human genome produces tens of thousands of long non-coding RNAs. These are molecules copied from DNA that don't code for proteins. The function of the vast majority has been unknown. The scientists developed a way to use CRISPR to test for function. Then they screened over 16,000 RNAs in seven human cell culture lines. Many human cell lines grown in the lab are derived from cancer cells. The reason for this is that cancer cells lack the growth constraints of normal cells and thus continue to divide indefinitely. So in the new study, CRISPR was used to inactivate individual RNAs, and then the effect of the inactivation was measured in each of the seven cell cultures. 500 of the RNAs had large effects on cell growth, and 90% of these acted in only one of the cell lines. Additionally, the inactivation of a single RNA sequence affected the cell in a complex and long-lasting way. Yes, the genome is more complicated than originally believed. But new technologies continue to evolve, allowing us to delve into the mysteries. This research was published last week in the journal Science. Last week, NASA announced the selection of the next two major missions. The first mission is called Lucy, named after the famous fossil of the Australopithecus skeleton that was important in understanding the history of the human species. In the same way, the goal of the Lucy mission is to study objects that are fossils from the formation of the solar system that may help us understand the history of planet formation. The objects are called Trojan asteroids, and they orbit with the planet Jupiter. It is believed that these asteroid-like objects were captured by Jupiter and preserved for billions of years in this distant cold orbit and may retain clues about what the solar system was like during its infancy. And as a local connection, the Lucy Mission headquarters will be at the Boulder office of the Southwest Research Institute. The second mission is called Psyche, which will visit an asteroid by the same name. The asteroid Psyche is a unique asteroid that's never been visited before. This asteroid measures about 210 kilometers in diameter, and unlike most other asteroids that are rocky or icy bodies, this one is thought to be comprised mostly of metallic iron and nickel, similar to Earth's core. Scientists wonder whether Psyche could be an exposed core of an early planet that could have been as large as Mars, but which lost its rocky outer layers due to a number of violent collisions billions of years ago. The Psyche mission will help scientists understand how planets and other bodies separated into their layers, including cores, mantles, and crusts, 
early in their histories. Speaking of billions of years ago, Joel, let's talk about bacteria, super old. So there's growing evidence that some bacteria, the good ones that is, are foot soldiers fighting to improve or maintain our physical and mental health. Research led by Christopher Lowry, an associate professor of integrative physiology at the University of Colorado Boulder, has shown that injecting beneficial bacteria called Mycobacterium vaci, or M. vaci, into mice can make them more resilient to stress. That study, published last May, showed that a syndrome in mice that is much like post-traumatic stress disorder can be prevented. The bacterial treatment lowered the mice's anxiety level. The study was just named among the 10 top achievements and breakthroughs of 2016 by the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. That's a non-governmental funder of mental health research. So now, Dr. Lowry and his team are moving forward with a clinical trial on 40 veterans in Colorado who've all been diagnosed with PTSD and co-occurring mild traumatic brain injury. So over the course of eight weeks, one group will be given an oral probiotic, the other will take a placebo. And the researchers want to see if altering the microbiome or the composition of bacteria that reside in the human gut can help heal the veteran's PTSD. If so, Dr. Lowry believes the bacteria, via pill, inhalation, or injection down the road, could be given to people at high risk of PTSD, such as soldiers preparing to be deployed or emergency room workers, to minimize side effects resulting from high stress. are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Sometimes when one has personal or health problems, it helps to get an outside perspective, talk to friends who have experienced similar problems and how they dealt with them, and other friends about how they avoided those problems. Talk to experts. Using all that input, you try to make the best choice to solve the problems and to live a long and happy life. Well, this is perhaps the situation we find ourselves in now with the health of our environment and the long-term viability of the human race. But where do we look for that outside perspective and expert help? The answer may be look to other planets and talk to those who study them. This is the approach astrobiologist Dr. David Grinspoon takes in his new book, Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future. Dr. Grinspoon is a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute and adjunct professor at the University of Colorado. In 2013, he was appointed the inaugural chair of astrobiology at the Library of Congress. He will be talking about his new book at the Boulder Bookstore next Tuesday. I had a chance to talk with Dr. Grinspoon about his book, first by asking, what exactly is an astrobiologist? As it sounds... It's a, sort of a hybrid word, um, which describes a hybrid field. Astrobiology is, to some degree, a combination of astronomy and biology. It's a multidisciplinary attempt to understand the potential for the universe to create life elsewhere. 
So the astro part, uh, we try to understand the environments of other planets and how they evolve. And the bio part, we try to understand the history and limits of life on Earth and try to infer what might possibly be universal about life elsewhere and then combine that with our growing astronomical knowledge to figure out where there might be other environments for life in the universe and how we might go about recognizing or even contacting it. So astrobiology is the life universe and everything. It, it kind of is, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, pretty good. And the, and the answer is 42. <laughs> exactly. Well, good. Then I think we're done with this interview. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm glad, we, glad we cleared that yes. up. Yes. Let's talk about your book. So you're approaching this from the point of view of an astrobiologist, and your book is called Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future. So what was your motivation for writing this book? I decided to try to look at the question of humans on Earth as an astrobiologist. In other words, somebody that thinks about how planets evolve and the role that life can play on planets and is used to thinking about other planets, what does it look like if you turn the telescope around and look back at our own planet from that perspective? So I wanted to put the human presence on Earth in the cosmic context of all the different changes that Earth has gone through in its history. Earth has gone through some pretty radical changes and it's going through a radical change right now due to the presence of humans. And I wanted to put us into that story, into that deeper planetary story, to see if looking at ourselves in that way might give us some new perspective on uh, what our real challenge is here and some new ways to think about our role on this planet and, and our future. So is, is that the key that you're kind of approaching here is, yes, the Earth has been through changes for billions of years, but this is the first time we are not only experiencing, but perhaps affecting that change. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at the different kinds of catastrophic changes the planet has gone through, and it's, it's gone through many, that you can sort of on a very deep level ask, what is different about the change that's happening now? And it turns out we are not the first species to come along and radically change the planet, even in ways that um, are catastrophic for other life. There have been other global catastrophes in the history of the Earth that have been caused by species of life just proliferating wildly and being so successful at what they do that they end up poisoning the planet for other species. So we're not the first ones to do that. Can you give but, an example of another species, another time that changed the Earth in that way? Sure. Well, uh, you know, a really powerful example is when life figured out how to use solar energy, when photosynthesis evolved and became common. There were these creatures living in the ocean, which is where all life lived uh, two and a half billion years ago, called cyanobacteria that were so successful at using solar energy to multiply themselves that they poisoned the entire atmosphere with a, a gas that was toxic and fatal to most other life that poison gas was oxygen. We call this the great oxygen catastrophe. And we think, oh, oxygen, what's wrong with that? We love oxygen. But that's because we've evolved, of course, to use its powerful chemical energy that is released when it combines with organic molecules. But until we evolved that power of respiration to use those reactions, those oxidation reactions with organic matter were poisonous and destructive. So that's an example of a species that came along and they just said, hey, 
here's a new energy source. Let's exploit it like crazy. <laughs> and, and they did it. And, uh, and of course, they sort of wrecked the world for all other life. Now, we see ourselves kind of doing that same thing. And uh, what's different? Well, of course, what's different is that we see ourselves doing it. What's different about now is what I call the advent of self-aware geological change. Hmm. That this is the first time a geological force has been aware of its own existence. So you're calling humans a geological force? Yes. Uh, and, that, you know, I'm not the first one to say that. There's this term that people may have heard, the Anthropocene, or Anthropocene, depending on uh, how you like to say it. The uh, geologists are now considering the idea that we have actually entered a new age of geological history, characterized by a new force, the force of the combined actions of humanity changing the planet. It's not just about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but we've changed the hydrological cycle of the planet by damming so many rivers. And we've changed not just the carbon cycle, but the nitrogen cycle and the sulfur cycle. And of course, the sea ice and the nature of the land surfaces we've changed with, with agriculture. And so my book, Earth in Human Hands, is basically an effort to describe the Anthropocene epoch from an astrobiology point of view. And with that deep time perspective, say, okay, what's really going on here? And so this existence of a force of geological change that is actually aware of itself creates, I think, great peril, but also potential for change. And that's, that's sort of one of my points, is that this, this is a dangerous time, but it's also a time that can go in ways that are actually quite positive for not only our species, but our biosphere, if we really kind of get a handle on what we're doing here. You say it's a dangerous time. Uh, you've also, I think, said that we're at the controls of planet Earth, but we're not in control. Exactly, exactly. We have no choice, I argue, in the book. We, we, can, we can't just take our hands off the wheel. Kind of like you break it, you bought it. We now um, have an obligation to learn how to manage this planet well, because we've assumed this role. We can't just suddenly stop everything we're doing without causing even more death and destruction. Without sort of knowing it, we've assumed this role of planet changers. And uh, we're, we're not going to stop being planet changers. So what we have to do is learn how to do it well. I think you use the term Terra sapiens? Yes. One thing I talk about is that when we approach our future, we have to do more than just talk about what we want to avoid. Obviously, we have near-term threats. We need to avoid the mass extinction that we, we've initiated but haven't yet fully started. We, we still have the opportunity to not cause a mass extinction. We need to obviously get a handle on climate change. But beyond what we want to avoid, I think it's very important for us to have a vision of what kind of a planet we want, what kind of a role we want to play, where we want to go. The 21st century obviously is a time that's fraught with a lot of challenges. But there will be a 22nd and a 23rd century. So, I, you know, we need a vision of how we want the world to be. And my name for that vision is Terra Sapiens, which means wise Earth. In other words, once we solve some of our near-term problems and pass this test, which we are faced with now, and create a more sustainable presence on the planet, and even, I argue, uh, we have the potential to play a, a, not just a, a benign, but a constructive role on the planet and to prevent future natural disasters and prevent future dangerous climate change and prevent 
dangerous asteroids from hitting the Earth. You know, we, we can turn it around so technology is actually helpful, not just to ourselves, but to the biosphere. And when we get there, then that's my vision for Terra Sapiens, a, a truly wise human presence on the planet. If you've just joined us, we are talking to Dr. David Grinspoon, astrobiologist and author of the book, Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future. We've been talking about the human impact on Earth and being wise stewards of the Earth. As the subtitle of your book says, Shaping Our Planet's Future, that begs the question, should we try to shape our planet's future? Yeah, it's a very provocative question. And, you know, when I call the book Earth in Human Hands, you could picture, oh, isn't that sweet, the beautiful Earth. <laughs> Holding the little Earth, a little flower nice, going out the top. Yeah, a little flower. <laughs> but but a lot of people react with horror. You know, they post uh, the, the, the little... Uh, Emoticon with you know with 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 the the uh, surprised horrified face whatever that is with the open mouth which is appropriate I don't mean Earth in human hands to be a totally easy concept in fact it is daunting and a little bit frightening to think that we clumsy short-sighted bickering humans are somehow responsible for this massive complex beautiful planet that we barely understand it's it's quite daunting and yet. I think people have an illusion that the Earth without us would be fine in the long run, that the climate left to its own devices is benign and Earth is this sort of Eden, this sort of garden. And that's an illusion because we've come along at an unusual time in Earth history. Our entire civilization has grown up and flourished in this 10,000-year period of relatively stable and relatively warm climate that is, uh, is an anomaly and will not last. Earth left to its own devices goes through really extreme climate changes. And, um, you know, there will be another ice age at some point, And our civilization would basically be completely destroyed. And a lot of other species would go extinct. So once we get over our immediate short-term um, challenge of just stopping our own vandalism of, of the planet <laughs> and of the climate, then we could turn to the question of, well, what then? What if we're to imagine ourselves having a long-term future? And I think we have to imagine ourselves having a long-term future. What role might we play on the planet? Can we flip this around? And actually, I think that when we get a handle on ourselves, it then becomes our obligation to play a more constructive role on the planet. And over the next 50,000, 100,000 years, we would absolutely want to stop those natural destructive climate cycles and we would absolutely want to stop that next asteroid from striking the earth i mean people say it's sort of a joke but the dinosaurs did not have a space program that's why they're no longer <laughs> here uh, we do have a space program and we don't have to go the way of the dinosaurs you talk about SETI. you talk about you know intelligent worlds in the universe what is your take on the likelihood of other planets with life particularly advanced civilizations, and if they're not there, what does that tell us about what we're doing? It comes down to how long do civilizations last. If civilizations with technology can last for a long time, meaning thousands or even millions of years, then there ought to be somebody to talk to. There ought to be plenty of them out there. If, on the other hand, 
a civilization with world-changing technology is an unstable thing that always does itself in after a few hundred years or after a thousand years, then the universe ought to be very devoid. There ought to be nobody, nobody to talk to. So it's, it's interesting. It turns out it's the same question, the question that we're facing now with our own future. Can world-changing technology become something that is integrated gracefully into a planet in a long-term way? Uh, our own existential question is the same question that we're faced when asking about SETI. Are there other, is there anyone else out there? And it also means that when we search for other possible civilizations, in a way, we're searching for an existence proof that it is possible to solve mm -hmm. the kind of crisis we're facing. You say SETI is an optimistic thing, but allow me to be pessimistic for a moment. We haven't detected any signals. Does this, what has been coined the Great Silence, mean it is inevitable that civilizations destroy themselves once they have the technology to do it? Well, it could mean that. And, you know, one thing um, I, I want to stress is that even though I'm, I'm discussing these uh, optimistic scenarios and these optimistic uh, possibilities for our own future, I definitely don't claim to know that that's our path and to know that that's the path of other civilizations. And I completely acknowledge there are darker possibilities. And yes, one interpretation of the fact that we haven't heard from anybody is that there's nobody there because they, uh, they've all done themselves in because there's something about technology that's inherently unstable. I don't think there's a good ironclad argument for that. For one thing, I don't see the great silence as being all that great. We haven't really looked that long or that far or that widely for signals yet. So what we've learned is it's, it's not true that every star has civilizations just like ours broadcasting loudly on radio bands in ways that we would pick up. So, we, you know, we've learned something about what's not there. But there are a lot of caveats to that, um, even the fact that we don't know that they would even be using radio. Maybe they've got some technology we don't understand. Maybe they, they're not interested in talking to primitive species like us. You can go, you know, the, the answers to this, this so-called Fermi paradox of, right. of, of where are they are, you know, there are books and books about it. There are a lot of possible paths. It doesn't necessarily mean there's nobody out there because they're all dead. Right. <laughs> One possibility. <laughs> so let me finish then with a question from your experiences, an astrobiologist, someone who for a living thinks about these big questions of life, the universe, and everything, and looking up at the stars. Are you optimistic about the long-term future of the human race, considering where we are right now? Yeah, I am. I'm very worried about the next century, honestly, about, you know, the time that, you know, our kids and our grandkids are going to be uh, facing challenges that are, that are to come. I think we're in for some rough decades, but I think if you imagine the 22nd century, we will be off fossil fuels. Uh, I mean, that's inevitable. Even if we were dumb as we could be and just drill, baby, drill and burn it all, they'll, they'll be gone. So we will transition our global energy system to another uh, more sustainable system. It's just a question of what path we'll take. And we need to push for the path of least damage uh, and least pain. But we will get there. The world will be somewhat changed, but there will be a world. Global population is going to level off late this century. All projections basically show that and, and turn around. 
for the right reasons, because fertility is declining, because poverty is decreasing, and, and women are getting more choices in a lot of places and uh, having smaller families. And so there are a lot of long-term trends and long-term inevitabilities that lead me to think that in the 22nd and the 23rd century, we will have solved a lot of the problems that confront us. We will have lived many generations with the knowledge, the sure knowledge that we are a global entity with global problems that require global solutions. I even think we'll look back on this time with disbelief uh, and go, can you believe that those people in the, the early 21st century were still driving around in those vehicles that were <laughs> destroying their own atmosphere? What were they thinking? So I'm optimistic on the long run, and I, I, I don't at all um, downplay the severe challenges we've got in the short run, but I think that we need to hold both of those visions in our head, the long-term vision of where we want to get to and the, the short-term um, challenges that we you know, need as much resolve as we can to, uh, to push ourselves towards the path of, uh, of wisdom. Well, on that challenging but optimistic note, I would like to thank you, David Grinspoon, for being on our show. Well, thanks a lot, Joel. Uh, it's um, really fun talking with you, and I, I always enjoy a chance to uh, converse with you about, uh, about all these great topics. Well, we look forward to talking to you again as we move further into the Anthropocene epic. <laughs> yes, may it, <laughs> may it live long and prosper. <laughs> that was astrobiologist Dr. David Grinspoon. He will be talking about his book, Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future, at the Boulder Bookstore next Tuesday, January 17th at 7.30 p.m. For more information, go to boulderbookstore.net slash event and visit his webpage at funkyscience.net. An extended version of this interview will be available on our website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bartell. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from House Band of the Universe featuring astrobiologist David Grinspoon on guitar. What do you know? Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. <laughs>